Hey, Sarah. Yes, Josh? Are you ready? I think so. Great. But before we start, we here at the Puppa Pod, along with Dixon Place, stand with love in solidarity with Black, Indigenous, and persons of color in our communities and across the country against racism, white supremacy, and police brutality. And for more information and specifics on our respective anti-racism statements and plans of action, please visit DixonPlace.org and ShakeOnTheLake.org to find out how we're listening, learning, and working within our communities. Black Black Lives Lives Matter. Matter. My name is Rowan McGee, and I think puppetry is natural. Puppetry is hard because if it was soft, you wouldn't like it as much. Puppetry is hard because it is professional wrestling for dolls. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Puppet Pod, the podcast in which we talk all things visual in an all things auditory medium. That's right. We tackle the big issues in the puppetry world right here in this very forum. We get people in a steel cage of intellectual discussion and we really hash it out in every single way possible, whether that's a ladder match, whether that's a a tables match, whether that's a chairs match, you know, that's a big reference to a lot of professional wrestling right there for those puppet podcast listeners who are into wrestling, which I think that's probably crossover. With me as always is my number one opponent and also sometimes tag team partner, Sarah Stabley. Sarah, how's it going on your end? Oh, it's going all right. Yeah. I need, I need, I could use some like professional wrestling moves against uh, some invasive animals in my apartment. Yeah, I was going to say, we uh, briefly mentioned this earlier, but for anyone that's listened to the podcast before, you may or may not know that there is a snake running amok in the theater, except no one's seen it. So it could be there. It could not be there. It could be psychological at this point. Who can say? But you, Sarah, have a real pest in your real apartment. I do. So last night I was like sitting in my little reading chair, reading a book as you do. And I watched a mouse crawl under my front door and then watch me. So I chucked my book at it, kind of missed it. I kind of hit it, but like not to the point where it did anything. And then it just scurried down the heating vent. So now I have, and if there's one mouse, I presume there's multiple mice. So now I have to I have to find a way to take care of it. So my thought was to like find the snake at the theater, convince it to come to my apartment, you know, and and have it do some uh, some hunting, some some snake wrestling moves, if you will. Ooh, yes, I love the idea of a snake battling a mouse. But I I think you're you're either making a couple of assumptions about this mouse, or you're completely wrong about how mice reproduce, because either it was pregnant when it arrived, or it's an asexual being, which I don't think mice are. Yeah, but like, what I'm saying is, if there's, if there's one mouse, there's probably multiple. Like, like mice aren't, you know, they, they travel in creepy hordes, so there's, there's probably many. I, I like the idea that a mouse would like sneak into your place and then like find the little like door and like prop it open for all its friends and be like, hey guys, come on. What else are they going to do? 
one mouse against a human, not likely. Multiple mice against one human, devastation. The joys of Rochester, New York, and mouse culture. They're coming for you, Sarah. They are. But um, yes, perhaps if you want to borrow the snake and keep it forever, uh, that would be great. I'd be down for that. I'd totally be down for that. Snakes over mice any day. Sarah. Josh. We have a great guest. We do. And this guest is someone that has actually tried, not on any fault of his own, to be interviewed on this podcast before. We had a great interview. It went really, really well. And then because of your and my incompetence and lack of podcastery at the very beginning stages of this podcast, we failed him. But I promise listeners out there and our special incredible guest today that we will not fail you this time. Rowan McGee, uh, puppet artist extraordinaire, is here. Rowan, hello and welcome back to the Puppet Pod, though it's really almost just a welcome for the first time because we messed it up, and I'm so sorry about that. It's good to be back for the first time. Uh, here again, <laughs> looking at slightly different backgrounds uh, as we as we zoom this all together. Indeed. Uh, well, Rowan, when we we talked in May, you know things were certainly a very different world than they are now in August. But how have you been in that time? I mean, it's been a roller coaster of a summer. Uh, when we talked, it was I think maybe five days after George Floyd was murdered. So that was That's on right. our minds yeah. and it was sort of all we were talking about, not in the podcast yep. entirely, but it's all what anybody was ever talking about. And yeah, and having that happen. Uh, and now the like, you know, just, just for the audience to, to get the whole range, the most recent sort of thing that's in the news is Biden picked Kamala Harris as his VP. So like to have that happen, yeah, to watch, to watch America wrangle with its racist past and racist present has been a lot. I don't know, how am I doing? Um, sometimes it's hard to tell that it's relevant, but uh, I, am, I, I am relevant to me and apparently to you guys. So I'd say my life is going okay. I'm about to get into some other projects, you know, sort of despite the pandemic. We're gonna try to, we're gonna try to shoot a film version of Robin Frohart's Plastic Bag Store while the set is still built there in Times Square. I'm working hopefully on this project with uh, Nick Lahane and Derek Forger that I hope will happen in this, in the Petzl Gallery later on in November and December. So like uh, I'm in a weird spot where I've been volunteering um, at food pantries and delivering groceries and like building puppets for my own sort of projects that aren't you know, exactly jobs. They're kind of more passion projects and, and like exercising, like sort of taking care of myself, trying to um, like doing some community organizing. And then now to watch like some puppetry jobs start to roll out again. It's uh, it's a little scary to believe that it could actually happen, that we could actually sort of go back to using the skills that we spent our lives building and not just think of ourselves as like individuals uh, in a country with no economy. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I'm in a, I'm in a funny place. I think I'm feeling good though. I'm feeling hopeful. There's a lot, there's a lot of good things, a lot of possible things. I'm, I'm really pumped on watching America really, really um, stare right at this election in November and like try hard to make a difference. That feels good. I'm, I, uh, I think, I think it was really like some growing pains that happened in the beginning of the summer as we all were like, we have a lot of work to do. And um, I'm feeling hopeful about how people are still motivated. And I don't know, I, I've been able to connect with a lot of people and um, a lot of my old friends, uh, but I want to do it more. I'm also still feeling relatively isolated. You know, I'm, I've just lived here with my partner and my roommate. 
that's a, those are actually only two people, my girlfriend, my partner, my roommate. You have to figure out which two are which. Uh, but it's me and two other people that I live with uh, and a cat. So yeah, I don't know. That's, there's that too. I'm, I'm feeling that, which is weird. But yeah, I guess my short answer is I'm feeling hopeful. That's a really good summation of, of uh, all of that. And I, I don't know if I'm feeling hopeful per se, but I, I want to be. And I, I do hope that uh, some of this momentum from earlier in the summer continues into the election season. And, you know, hopefully people get out and we can make some change which would be really exciting. And yeah, you're right. Since we last spoke, there weren't a whole lot of things happening in the world. I've since come back and forth between Brooklyn and Perry a few times, and we've actually seen each other in real life and walked about our neighborhood mm-hmm. that we uh, kind of don't live too far from one another in. We got some ice cream at a place called What's the Scoo? The and then scoo. the P is sort of, uh, the P is like a, a symbol of like an ice cream cone, but it's just What's the Scoo? It's just what's the scoo. And they have great banh mi for an ice cream place. Their banh mi is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Like Vietnamese food and banh mi. It's, I mean, <laughs> Vietnamese food plus banh mi. Also ice cream and then Vietnamese food and then banh mi. That's right. Wow. It's very specialized. That, I mean, not going to lie. That's super enticing. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, we met up and had some what's the scoo uh, and got to hang out a little bit in real life. And now we're here again over the virtual space. And we, we've since talked to some people that you'll also be working with in real life space on the, the Plastic Bag Store project. We talked to Robin Prohart and... You had Robin on the pod? We, we had Robin on the pod and Andy Manjuk and Emma Wiseman. So I've kind of gotten the inside scoop on the plans to, to go into the city and, and film a socially distant way, a uh, low-risk indoor media production on the Plastic Bag Store, which... You know, we talked a little bit about the show with Robin and then also uh, a little bit with Emma. But I wonder for you, like, tell us a little bit about this plastic bag store journey from, I guess it was two years ago when you were in North Carolina and a hurricane came in the middle of that, that project to then opening it up two years later in Times Square and a pandemic happening to that project. Like, what is that journey like for you to kind of be a part of and a contributing member to that show? Because we worked on the pigeoning before that, um, back in 2012, there's a real, Robin really values the people in her cast, like as people. And so um, I, even when shit gets crazy, when there's a hurricane that shuts it down in North Carolina, Hurricane Florence, I think it was, when there's the worst like health crisis in any of our lifetimes, I've felt pretty well taken care of through all that. I don't, I, uh, I think, oh, well, these people, you know, we're going to get together and make something again. Uh, and I think, I think more stressful is like when we are down to the wire, we only have a couple more days left before we're supposed to open in Times Square. And, and we still need to like decide um, exactly how to, what the choreography is over here. And, and we work long hours and often with no windows around um, in like uh, in this, in Mana Contemporary, that's this like art space in New Jersey when we were making it before we brought up Times Square. And it's tough on the body to just be in like a, sort of a warehouse all the, the whole time. But um, these, that crew with Chad Rains and uh, Admiral Gray and Emma and Nick and Andy and Eric, our, our stage manager, Robin and Freddie, the, um, the musician and the, the, does some voiceover work. It's so supportive. It's so, um, 
it's kind of why I end up doing theater and puppetry and stuff is to be around people who want to, they want you to feel valuable, but they also want to, they want you to like, you know, sort of push yourself and like bring whatever, even if it's a crazy idea, they want, they want to see you try things and everybody feeling the same way. It's a, it's a, it's a sweet group. Um, having it come to Times Square was a trip. I almost like couldn't believe it. This show is so much about uh, the world's worship of plastic these days. The Anthropocene, I don't know if you know that term, that's like the layer of the earth that's, that's modern era that has like nuclear particulates in it and plastics. And it's unlike anything that's come before it on the earth's you know, geological surface. So it's so much about that worship of plastic that there are times that Times Square is an incredible place to do it. There were times when we would walk next door to the Hershey store and it was like right as the pandemic was happening and we'd see Italian tourists and stuff just kind of walking slowly through this, this like serious temple of, of commercial chocolate, just like touching little things and putting it back and like running their hands over the M&Ms or whatever. And, and, and the M&M store is there. And it, it, was, it was so bizarre to, to see people not performing what we're trying so hard to fabricate, just like feet away from our fake store that is this plastic bag sort of temple uh, and then have these other people really like demonstrating how you can just stare at packaging and just be excited to try another version of a sugared chocolate that's just like it, it got another i got a new name we're just trying out this cookie that has a different kind of m&m in it pay eight dollars for that and to watch people eat it and stuff it's bringing it to times square has been like a real trip and a real like confirmation of robin's vision of that this is like relevant but also um that we can see it it's not just like oh that's true in our lives it's like oh my god this is happening and we have some power over it i guess but um but like how do we change the way we relate to this commercialism and also all of this plastic that's just in every part of our lives so i don't know that's my feelings about the show i guess if you're asking how the journey was it was i don't know it was a lot it was um we got John Riddleberger to join the cast. That was really exciting. He's like such a tank. The guy has so much stamina and so much attention to detail. In a way, Robin and the pigeoning crew, which I guess is no longer the pigeoning crew, but the plastic bag store crew, uh, has sort of been a large part of my education in puppetry. That, that and maybe like Phantom Limb, and then we'll throw in for good measure Dan Herlin, which is where we met working on a Dan Herlin project. But Phantom Limb Company is another company, the company that sort of started doing puppetry in. But um, the Robin Frohart group, which I think sometimes is called uh, House Open, is sometimes what we call ourselves as a, as a, um, a company, if we were a company. Um, anyway, that group has really educated me about like noticing and offering ideas, like noticing what someone's doing and, and getting excited about it and trying to, trying to buffer them up for what they're already moving towards. And that group specifically took away some of the stigma that I think we have in theater where you don't want to give someone a line reading. You don't try to demonstrate for someone what you want them to do. But that group, it's so much rotating cast that it's constantly, if you don't say, hey, let me try what you just did, Robin might just say, um, Rowan, why don't you just go try what Josh just did? Like, just keep flipping and, and keep trying it and, and demonstrate what you just saw until we start to boil it down to an essence and go, okay, okay, so now we know that the timing here and the, the feeling of this gives us the story we were looking for. And then also it's just lots of time spent talking about what it all means. So that process has grown. You know, we've, we've incorporated more people. We get more confident in our own ideas. We get more 
outlandish with like, what if we blow this whole thing? What if this audience is actually in the set? What if, you know, you're starting to get more uh, experimental with all that stuff. And that's been cool to, to let special, Andy Mandrick is, is a particular force when it comes to like, how do we break another rule? How do we try, how do we bend this genre again? and make it, a, let's just go actually in another direction, a completely different genre. And it will still somehow tell the story that we started with to go in a completely different direction. So that's, yeah, the journey has been educational and hard to start and stop like this and move locations and watch it grow and scale. And then exciting to watch pomegranate arts take it over and, and start building like an actual grocery store, like not cardboard anymore, but an actual grocery store that you can walk in and walk around. And when we were in North Carolina, people would walk in, before, before Palm had, had built the stuff and it was, it was Robin and, and Carol and Nick who had built the set, people would walk in trying to buy milk and fruit and because the store was so realistic. And then they'd pick up this orange that what they realized was just actually an, a, a plastic bag in the shape of an orange. And then they'd get confused and leave or something. They thought there was a sale and it's really just plastic goods. So that has been really exciting watching all those ideas come up and watching Robin and, and Tyler specifically Tyler, Tyler Gunther, like make just like, just in, just they think of how do you make ketchup out of plastic and then they do it. And then they make a label and they're like, what if all the cigarettes were actually just uh, puns on plastic bags? And then they do it. They, there's a very quick process for them. They work alone and, and together very quickly and, and, and imaginatively. So that's been, it's been cool to watch their imaginations just like sprawl out like a red carpet in front of them. Yeah. I don't know. It's been exciting. I, uh, I don't, I'm not sure where I fit in all that. It's just been hard and fun to, to witness it and to like kind of keep the wheels greasy. It's, it's a really exciting time to be able to grow as an artist, right? From that 2012 initial introduction to that group of people and, and group of collaborators to, you know, eight years later and you guys are still working together. You have a comfort level and uh, yeah, like you're saying, like it keeps you agile and, uh, growing as an artist, but also when you decide to work on your own or lead some of your other projects that you do, you know, what you can take from that or, or glean from that and apply or also leave behind, you know, the things that don't work and bring the best things to the next process, I guess. This is something I think about quite a bit, actually. It seems, it, it appears, I don't, I'm, this is a question for you. It appears to me that people like Robin and Nicola Hain Actually, like all of my friends, they're all either single, like like oldest children in their sibling lineup, or they're or they're they're either only children or they're the oldest. And there's some inherent expectation of authority that they're like, yeah, I think I should do it like this, and we should do that. And, or actually, maybe I just work alone on it for a while, and then you guys can help me fill in. I'm a young, I'm the youngest of four, and it is uncomfortable for me to work by myself. Mm. And I'm constantly doing. It. I did it this morning, but I I don't want to like post the pictures of my puppet on Instagram or, or Facebook and like wait for the likes to come in. This feels weird and, and not like what I'm actually looking for. I want to work in teams. I somehow don't even feel good about what I'm doing unless there's some other people touching it or there to like give me, even if it's negative feedback. Do you find that it's like easy to make a lot of work and be prolific in your own life? And also what, I don't remember, are you the oldest of your siblings? I am the eldest. Sarah, you're the youngest as well? I'm the youngest, yes. And, you know, I, I prefer a collaborative process. I, I always like having people to bounce things off of. And as if I have to work on my own, I also feel like I've gotten better at delegating things to other people that can either do them better than me or I know that they can do them well on their own. 
Um, and Sarah is really great at, you know, being like, hey, can you handle this thing? Or can you try to make this like tiny puppet black box recorder from an airplane? Can you like figure out how to do that? So we have a puppet sized one in the show. And, and she's incredible at it, like an incredible artisan in that way. And I think it goes back and forth for me, right? Like I, I do like to build puppets on my own and, you know, maybe not knowing what they're for or definitely having a purpose for the show that they're going to be in. But at the same time, I really love the collaborative environment and knowing that I don't, that all the pressure isn't on me. So it kind of goes back and forth, right? And I think it goes back to something that Dan Herlin said, you know, like he goes into this process as like a tour, but at the same time, there's so much he doesn't know and he's willing to say that he doesn't know and to turn to the ensemble and say, I don't know what this next part is. Let's figure it out. And I think I've gotten more comfortable in that space too. I feel like that's the majority of my space. I think for me, it's more like, I don't want to be the one coming up with the concept of the story, like deciding on style and all of that. But I like the collaboration that comes from knowing that someone has this vision in their head and I can help execute it. And that's like my favorite way to collaborate. But if it were to be me in that sort of, yeah, archer position, I don't think, I think I would have a really hard time with that. I think it's easier for me to kind of carry out someone else's vision than my own. Shayna Stripe is actually an example of somebody who, sorry, I know, I think maybe we have to take a break in a second, but I think Shayna Stripe is somebody who is younger. She has one older sister yeah. and is super self-motivated. She makes so much work and- um, Prolific. Come Prolific. Right. Yeah, and similarly, she's like, it's like she sees it and then she just does it. And she doesn't love everything she does, but she still makes it. And this is kind of an awesome example of like, you know, I let, I let those doubts get in the way and she, still has them, but she still makes the thing and then makes slightly, tries to make it slightly better the next time knowing those previous doubts. Right. Yeah. Well, it's funny because she was talking about her relationship with her sister oh, and yeah. how her sister is always like, <laughs> you know, telling her, she's like, this is going to look great. And she's like, what? No. <laughs> and then they do it anyway. And it turns out awesome. Well, why don't we take that break and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll chat more with the youngest, but uh, maybe the most talented of the McGee's, Rowan, when we come back. As a listener of the Puppet Pod, have you ever wondered aloud to yourself, how do I become a puppeteer? Are you interested in being a part of a collaborative team of wonderfully weird humans making new work together in a supportive environment guided by professional puppet artists? And are you thirsty to see brand new works of original puppet theater from emerging artists? Well, then we've got a treat for you. The Object Movement Program at the Center at West Park in New York City. Object Movement is a program of the Center at West Park for the development and presentation of new works by puppeteers and object theater artists, curated by the incredible artistic triumvirate of Mike Okakuchi, Rowan McGee, and Justin Perkins. Since 2017, Object Movement has supported artists to develop their voices and their work, addressing eternal human questions and the urgent challenges of our society through puppetry and object theater, all culminating with an annual festival of puppet performances. Participants in object movement residencies and digital labs meet weekly to share the questions they're wrestling with and the discoveries they've made. Participants take turns sharing works in progress and offering and receiving peer feedback with moderation and support from the curators, culminating in a festival of lab experiments. Artists may apply with specific projects in mind or a desire to explore and experiment. A safe space for experimentation and embracing your inner, I don't know. Apply for an object movement residency today. For more information on upcoming showings and residency applications, please visit www.centeratwestpark.org backslash object dash movement. 
That's centeratwestpark.org backslash object dash movement. Drink the puppet Kool-Aid. Move some objects. Object movement. The Puppet Pod. Welcome back to The Puppet Pod with our guest, Rowan McGee. Rowan, during our break, we were talking about how there is an embarrassment of artistic riches in the McGee family. And yeah, for those of you who weren't listening very carefully, uh, Josh said I was the most talented of the I said maybe. This was undisputed. Maybe oh, the maybe? most, because I didn't want to upset any of the incredible artists, brothers and sisters that you have, and parents for that matter. And I just didn't want them to come at me in the in the DMs yeah. on Instagram. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you I'm gonna bring it way back. I'm gonna bring it back to like I guess it's probably nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, my mom has my sister. I think she's in college at the time and decides to have this baby against the wishes of uh, of the of the baby's father. My mom is now in college for she got into University of Illinois for dance therapy, right? Real money job there. And found out that the that the program had canceled the dance therapy, the, the, the university had canceled her program. So now she's just doing, I don't know, mo- like modern dance. She's like, okay, I guess I'll take dance for, that's what I came here to do. I thought I had a job lined up, uh, like an idea for how this goes and has Micah Leona McGee, my sister, and is raising her by herself and is taking these dance courses and then meets my dad who had been going to the University of Illinois for food science. And my dad, I think it's a pretty quick turnaround. My dad meets, my dad starts taking dance classes you know, just because that seems like a fun thing to do, changes his major from food science, where he had a pretty secure track to dance, modern dance specifically, and meets my mom. Pretty soon after they get married, they're still in college. They then have one, two, I think he, while they're in grad school, I think they, I think they get out of grad school, get master's degrees from the University of Illinois in dance, and then have a fourth, which is me. And they're, you know, my dad's like working at a dairy, and my mom's got four kids. These are dancers with four kids. You know, imagine how crazy it is now how people are like, I don't know, like there's we don't there's not enough money to raise kids or I don't know, we're gonna bring them into this world. My parents were just they were just like eh, like yeah, let's have another one. Eh, let's have a sure. Where the, and my, my dad would my mom and dad would say that the nurse told them in the hospital, where there's children, there's hope. So they just like kept making them, which is insane. And so then moved to Texas and started living with my mom's mom. And then these two dancers. My dad like tries to have a tries to be a choreographer, like run a dance company, and my mom is there in it with him. You know, they they sort of shift more into teaching because they have these master's degrees, and then you know are raising four kids at the same time, like while like teaching, like sometimes like in little studios. I remember being like a, a in a little play area of a dance studio, many hours just like looking and coloring and watching people dance around. And then not long after that, you know, my sister goes to Germany and then she comes back, she starts studying at UT and becomes a filmmaker. My brother Jesse goes off and becomes a sculptor um, and now teaches at a school in Germany where he's got three kids. And my sister now also teaches at a junior college in Denmark where she's got four kids. And my brother Cameron's a chef. Anyway, I left a gap in there, but just so you like, if anybody out there is listening to this pod because they're an artist and they don't know, you know, what the future holds, sometimes you just keep going forward. And I mean, my mom lived on her mom's property for a while. And I think that I know a lot, a lot of friends who are doing that now in the pandemic. They're just like, I guess the only thing that makes sense while I don't have a job is just like live with my folks for a bit. But they persevered and now they have these like 
like I truly cannot claim to be more talented than these my siblings because they're all so so good at what they do and it's it's it like embarrasses me in that sibling way where I'm like well maybe I'll try to make a film and I'll be like no oh, man <laughs> maybe I'll try to make dinner no no not, no seriously <laughs> I feel that way about dinner I do I'm like this isn't it. well you know, Cameron wouldn't do that I'm just gonna order out. <laughs> Well, I think it is safe to say, Rowan, that you are the best puppeteer in your family. And Absolutely. I challenge all of them to puppeteer off with A me. real and puppet off. Yeah. What happens if they're better? Um, I'm trying to imagine that situation. Uh, I think... <laughs> because it's impossible. It doesn't exist. I'm going to... It's a, that's a really insane idea, Sarah. Um, I, I'm just gonna go. I'm, my first reaction is LOL, um, and then also I think if I think I would cry of joy if my siblings just were not that there's any. I don't think art and puppetry is like hierarchical. There's not like a better way to do it, or like people are better than other people. It's just your way. But if they were just as good and better than me at the things that I already do, I think I would just. Yeah, I think I would weep with joy at knowing that they that this thing that I do is is inherent in McGee's. I love that. Well, um, since we're on the topic of the McGee artist and and you specifically as artist, what was kind of your origin story into the puppet world? What kind of got you interested or inspired to get into this this form? Yeah, I don't know. I was coming out of Sarah Lawrence with like doing dance and theater and having like studied abroad in, in Italy and, and Russia, I started to sort of release my grip on what I thought was like the coolest kind of theater, which was like method acting with characters. And I don't know where that actor ends and which abuse is theirs and which is their characters. And that's pretty cool. And that's the best. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of started to see stuff that I didn't necessarily understand the language or was wordless, but that was speaking that was really making me emotional in ways that I'd forgotten I could be. And so coming out, I, I don't know, that didn't really, that wasn't a guiding post. It was just kind of, I'm gonna keep making theater, but now I'm, uh, I'm excited to use different experimental forms. And uh, there was a puppetry course at Sarah Lawrence. I didn't take it. Um, I did take Dan Herlin's projects class, which is a little more like a laboratory, like what Puppet Lab is like, and what um, this program that I um, help curate now called Object Movement is like, which is just a, you meet weekly, you give each other feedback, um, and you try to buffer people up at what they want to do rather than what you like think is cool, but what you notice they are, the direction they're going, you try to push them further down that road and give them feedback just to help them be more in the direction that they want to move. So I did take that class, but I didn't have, I didn't really, there was no puppetry per se I, I, uh, in my life at that time, except in the way that it's actually always in everybody's life. That is something, you, everybody's always kind of, you know, um, de like demonstrating with their hands and moving objects around to, to help tell stories. Um, so that was happening. But then I, I don't know, I came out and yes. I was gonna say- uh, I'm res responding to Josh's face. My, my lean in toward the camera. Yeah, I saw him lean in and I-, I was gonna for say- For the readers at home. <laughs> for, the, for the readers at home, that you have such a background in dance too in your mm -hmm. life, you know, from being in those dance studios that you were mentioning growing up, but you also danced a bit at Sarah Lawrence, that there is something inherently uh, dancey in, in puppetry as well. Yeah, yeah, it's very choreographic. Sometimes when I'm like trying to explain to somebody what it is I'm doing or, or um, I'm trying to like write it in resume, I'll use the word choreographic puppetry because I don't do a lot of like hand and rod stuff like Sesame Street, 
style, um, like a little creature that moves their mouth a lot. Not that I don't like it. I actually really love that stuff and I do it some of the time, but, um, the place where I have, I, I just lose myself and I'll start getting really like the time will just fly is, is yeah, how to move myself in such a way, but also how to move these things near me in such a way that they start to express something without, without some, uh, overarching narrative or anything just that they but but that the movement itself is expressive and that is a you know like puppetry a really ancient form of storytelling is just that in movement we see ourselves in things moving and in people moving we see something we relate to it's kind of pre-verbal that the, the instinct to like see something move and relate to it anyway i yeah i don't know i should i should uh, i should like pick up the pace on my long long story about actually very short amount of time that passed wherein I came out of college. Some people said, you should audition for this group. Uh, and one of those people was like an old high school friend of mine who had that one of the directors of this group called Phantom Limb Company had gone to my high school. So there was just a reason to do it. And they wanted people who could walk on stilts and do modern dance and um, operate these marionettes. And I, you know, was a novice in all of these things. And I had no experience on stilts uh, and no experience with marionettes. But um I think my, you know, I got along with those people and Jessica Grindstaff and Eric Sanko were so cool and sweet. And I think we understood each other on another level. There's something we were interested in the same thing. And that was, that was another blessing. And another reason what, that I would stay in puppetry later was that they weren't just judging me based on my skills. Um, on like, am I dancey enough? They're noticing my attention and I was noticing theirs and, and, and what we were drawn towards and what we, what, little notes that we would pick up on you know that do you know that movie jiro dreams of sushi no it was like a netflix sarah you know that movie i love that movie it's such a good documentary he talks about how like if he had a better palate he could make better sushi because you can't like at a certain point you start to you can notice the differences even if it's just binary like oh this is a little sweet or a little sour or whatever and you can push it in direction but at a certain point if your nose isn't sensitive enough you can't tell the difference between these different pieces of fish and so I think I would, I would venture a, a hypothesis that Jessica and Eric at Phantom Limb Company and the other, you know, um, Christopher Williams, who was there as well, and, and Greg Kozatek, who was, I think, an influential intern at the time, uh, also an incredible comedian, Greg Kozatek. They were there, and I think that we were just noticing that we had, we had similar attention to certain kinds of details. And so then I, I don't know, I would get cast in this thing with all these modern dancers and me. They didn't really cast any puppeteers because they found it was easier to train dancers to walk on stilts and, and, um, and use marionettes than to, treat, than to train puppeteers to, to do these other weird things that they have in mind, these very physically demanding, expressive images that they're trying to create on stage. It was not, no, not entirely a narrative performance. It's very imagistic and their company remains that way. It's so much about visual art and not, and not so they're not trying to um, like tell a storybook show, although they do that sometimes. Anyway, I then all of a sudden am while babysitting and making Shakespeare with my friends, I am now also tr like rehearsing and touring to like Holland with this professional puppet theater thing experience installation. So um, walking on stilts behind these marionettes, I start to get really into what is happening to those puppets and, and why, and what, why is this look cool? And that doesn't. And then Nick Lahane, uh, who I had studied in Moscow with was like, Hey, I saw that show. Would you want to work on this chimpanzee thing I'm building? And that was in, I want to say 2012. And I said, yeah, absolutely. It's a completely different kind of puppetry, but I'm into it. And then we made chimpanzee for the puppet lab at St. Anne's warehouse. And then 
Robin saw that show and was like, I'm using a similar style as that. But she asked Andy, who was in another piece in that same lab, like, who do you, can we get, can you get more people? I want to build a bigger team for the pigeoning. And he just selected Nick and I and was like, yeah, those two dudes, bring those on. And um, I, yeah, so then I, we started working with Robin and it kind of just snowballed like that. It would be another thing and another thing and someone else would see a thing. And then I would babysit less. Uh, and then at one point I would teach stilt walking at a children's circus camp because now I know how to do that. And then I would be a teaching artist. And so I was doing less childcare and more like education. And then at a certain point it was just mostly puppets and I could be touring and I would find myself, you know, in Azerbaijan with Nick and Andy working on a, on like a show that's like the opening ceremonies for something called the Islamic Solidarity Games, which is like a Muslim majority country, like pre-Olympic event. So like those sorts of things would start to happen or, or la- uh, two summers, no, last summer I worked with John Riddleberger on um, Clifford the Big Red Dog. We like puppeteered the reference puppet for the actual title character. You know, there's actually a lot of weird stuff that was not okay about how we were exploited and, and, and called background performers and how Paramount figures out how not to pay puppeteers when they don't want to. But we still had such a good time and it was so hard and so cool and we learned so much. And it's just, I bring it up as an example of like, you start to get good at this thing. You continue to invest in the parts you like. And for my, yeah, like as you pointed out, from in my case, it's a lot of bodies and oh, I can hear the crows in the background chiming in intense. Um, yeah, sorry, there there's crows circling. I don't know what that means for they said, that omen here. They're, they're warning me for the podcast. Warning us. Send them here. Send them here to get the mice. God damn yeah. it. Um, do crows eat mice? That's interesting. That sounds crows like a folk tale. That sounds like a puppet show. Um, anyway, so then I, you know, you end up. I end up. One ends up doing some weird, very physically demanding things that one could call puppetry because somebody needs you to do, uh, you know, they need this large piece of foam to move and act like a dog. And so they, they get the people who love doing that. I want to ask about this because growing up Clifford, the big red dog was like my book series. Mm. I loved it. So how, how did that happen? You said it, that just was kind of a connection that happened with people that you had also worked with in the past. I, I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to give you the like technical answer and the philosophical answer. And I'll give you the technical answer, answer first, which is that I believe what happened is Catherine Gowell, who I met with Josh working on demolishing everything with amazing speed. No, I met Catherine actually before that. I met her in Hagoromo. Anyway, the point is uh, she told me to audition for Angels in America. I was then puppeteering in this Broadway show and Eric Wright, uh, I think saw me in that. And when they asked him, hey, uh, what like we saw that you made a puppet similar to ours, who would you get to perform that thing? And he gave them a list. They interviewed me. They said, you're cool, find another one like you. And then I was like, John Riddleberger has the same sort of body type as me because they wanted just to be exactly the same type, like height so that the puppet would, would look level. So then that's technically Eric Wright of Puppet Kitchen, who is a very influential figure in New York. He sort of just threw my name in a hat and then I, I showed up and, and I went to that interview and I was like, I'm going to do this like a job. Okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be too excited about it. And they were like, that's perfect. Everyone else is too enthusiastic. I don't want to, I don't know what anybody else's interview was like, but I got the sense that they liked that I acted like, all right, is this going to be another job? And then I'll do it. And they're like, great, great. Don't just, 
do it like it's do it like it's hard and if there's fun then that's a bonus and those two guys actually the guys who hired me and, and th that team that like interviewed me and john were so sweet and nice to us and film sets are tough but those guys those two guys like continued to be really sweet to us throughout anyway the philosophical answer is i sometimes look to these things and i see my friends do it where you go how is that possible how is it possible that the thing that sarah stably loved as a child this dog who grows so big purely out of love this like symbol that you know you've ascribed all this meaning to how is it possible that then somebody performs that and how do they get chosen and it is not with an equal amount of care as you have put into that dog it is it is so it's based on these random things i i really got kind of got superstitious like should i how do i show up to this is, is interview, it's not even an audition, it's just an interview, they're gonna talk to me and that way they're gonna find out if I can be Clifford? Like, how are they gonna, this, that's, and they don't really, it's gonna be animated over anyway. Right, right. And it's not to do with that, it's so random. It's so, um, you know, can you do these really specific things that our animation studio can't do? Do you seem like someone who won't complain if you have to be under a foam creature for 12 hour days? Like typically, more sometimes and a little less sometimes, but like, on average. So, wow. you know, I think I, if I, if I were to like draw a line, like how does Rowan end up being your dog man? <laughs> I, I would say it's, I would say it's the, the thing I mentioned earlier in the episode, which is my dad working in a dairy and like growing up working class in Chicago, giving me this sense that like, you're going to work hard and um, you don't, you're, you're going to have, you're going to, you're going to go home and celebrate in your own ways. You don't need work to, to be like, uh, a, basically giving me this working class sense of what work is, what the people at work are, and how to value hard work, and, and, and how a union can protect you. And me not being in the union, just showing up with these little seeds that my dad had planted in my attitude, probably made me into a dog man in the movie. That you'll not, you won't see me, because be, it'll be all these CGI'd out, but like, it's stuff that are, is completely out of our control. And it's fun to think that like maybe there are artists involved and there are who choose these things but it's so it's so i don't know it's so kind of just the universe like just pushes pieces around and and you know like they say god laughs when you make a plan like, i don't know i don't really know how i ended up in clifford but i know how i stayed in it and i know how much fun i had and yeah and now you're a dog man i'm a dog man sometimes this isn't i want to one minute okay I, this is this is a thing uh that they would do and at some point, maybe John and I have to like, just come totally public about all the weird stuff that happened to us on Clifford. But in order to not refer to us as puppets, puppeteers, they wouldn't refer to the dog as Clifford. They would refer to it as the dog or often the dragon. Now, why would they call a dog a dragon? You have to go, it's a little bit legal here. It's because in order to pay us as background performers, they have to come up with a category, a background performer that fits what we're doing, which is background performers don't get to usually talk to the director or talk to what's called the first team, like the actors and stuff. They're hanging out with the, the assistant director and the stand-ins and stuff. Those are the background performers. The, they, the, the hierarchy is very clear. But in order to be in this position where the director gives you notes and you talk to the actors and you're operating this big thing and your hours are so crazy, they are going towards a weird stipulation where you could be a background performer in a special category, such as a Chinese dragon dancer. 
Now, what's even weirder is that it's not anything like a Chinese dragon dance. What it actually is is a Chinese lion dance, which I know because I took four years of Kung Fu at a wonderful school called Bola Kung Fu, where they would train us to do some lion dancing. And people think those are dragons because they're so colorful, but they're actually lions. It is somewhat similar to a Chinese lion dance, but they would call the thing a dragon, which is so weird and archaic because it's Clifford that they're referring to, that it's just their way of being, trying to cover their bases so they don't think of us as principal performers or both years. So anyway, yeah, dog man and sometimes dragon man. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, we will take a short break and then we'll come back with more dog man, uh, dragon man, puppet man with Mr. Rowan McGee. Oh man, let's please put that as a contender <laughs> for the title of the episode. Uh, we'll put it into consideration. Uh, <laughs> dog man, dragon. Dog man, dragon man with Rowan Hashtag. McGee. Uh, and we'll be back in just a second with more puppet pop. The Puppet Pod is produced in collaboration with Dicks in Place, whose virtual programs are free and participating artists are remunerated. That's right, artists getting paid to do what they do even during a pandemic. Donations help us bring together visionary artists and adventurous audiences and support the community during this challenging time. So if you like what you are listening to in the Puppet Pod, please consider making a gift to dicksinplace.org. Dixon Place's puppetry programs, including Puppet Block, Mine by Sheena Stripe, and New Money by Maria Camilla, are made possible in part with generous support from the Jim Henson Foundation and donors like you. Thank you. The Puppet Pod. We are back with more of the Dog Man, Dragon Man. Puppet Man, Puppet Snack in Rowan McGee. Rowan, uh, I'm curious because I I ask this for a lot of our artists and I'm curious for you is when the opportunity comes up that someone asks you what you do. Of course, contextually, this always changes, but do you have any go-to answers for how you reply for how you identify as an artist? Yeah, I I steal something that I heard Freddie Price say once. Uh, So so I'll say I'm a puppeteer because I know it's vague enough that they can't quite latch to it. Uh, uh, But if they do have an idea, then they say, what kind, what do you mean? You know, I'll say something about sort of large live theatrical puppetry, but also to say that it's theater. Mm. It's basically theater. You know, to take the stigma away from the word puppet and put it back on the fact that like, you see, you know what theater is and you know what, film and TV are, and you appreciate the costume design and the set design and all that. And that's essentially what the puppets are too. They're, they are like, you know, hopefully well-crafted or just cleverly conceived design that you read story in, that you just sort of see, you see character in. So I don't know, sometimes I'll give them that spiel, but for the most part, I'll say, I'll, yeah, I'm a, I'm a puppet, I'm a puppeteer, or I make puppet theater, or I'm a theater artist and I mostly make and work with uh, puppets. Uh, or sometimes I travel and perform with them more than I make them. I like large live theatrical puppeteer. That's a really nice description. <laughs> yeah, the other, I, I met someone cool the other day who lives in my neighborhood. I feel like her name is Jane. Uh, I don't remember her last name, but she used to work. She's a union like costumer, and she used to work on Sesame Street. And she and I saw she had a mask of like Sesame Street characters, and I was like, Oh, do you work in? Uh, you know, we were both working for this thing called People in Need. It's a cool little, um, like, volunteer organization in a, in a Bangladeshi uh, restaurant in Ditmas Park, kind of Flatbush, Kensington area. 
And um, I said, do you work in puppetry? She's like, yeah, well, I used to work for Sesame Street. What do you do? And I explained it to her. She paused for a while and she was like, oh, so mostly live theater. I was like, oh yeah, sorry. Not Sesame Street is not live theater. No, it's recorded. It's a whole, there's a whole art to that medium too, to being aware of where your camera is and stuff. But yeah, no, I'm mostly doing this stuff that is live and uh, physical. Uh, speaking of live and physical, trying a transition out here, talk a little bit about puppeteering on Broadway, the Broadway in Angels in America, because I know that that is such a completely different process from the normal shows that we tend to work on, which are a little bit more downtown, a little bit more, uh, everybody does a little bit of everything. And then you get to the Great White Way, which is a terrible name for Broadway. They really should change that. Yeah, why is um, it white? I mean, I know I why it is now, but I, why did they call it that to start? Yeah, I don't know. I don't Great know. White but, um, way. Yeah, it's bad. Preston White Way. <laughs> exactly right. But things are so regimented and like very specific in, in that kind of unionized way, but commercial theater way. Um, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about what that process was like for you. Oh, man. It's, it's, um, yeah, I, it's, it was very, as you put it, there was, there were lanes that you had to sort of know what to do and how to stay in. Uh, you had to focus on your thing. You don't go fix the thing. There's, there's, for a union person who fixes the thing. So if you're that kind of puppeteer, turn that off, turn off that, that channel and just focus on the performing. And also by being in this role, that's sort of, we called our, I think they were called angel shadows was our, our title. We were in this sort of second tier cast that weren't the main characters that are in the script, but actually these ideas that someone came up with when they decided they were going to put, when someone being Marion Elliott and uh, Finn Caldwell, the like puppet designer for the national theaters, uh, Angels in America. By the way, it was Angels in America was the play that um, that, we, that I was in. They came up with this idea. So we were not, we were sort of, we were friendly with the cast and we could talk to the director, but for the most part, there was this like very special thing. The director and the assistant directors and the choreographers were constantly working with this core cast that we're going to have to do two four-hour plays. And they had to learn two different four-hour plays and perform them back to back. And sometimes on certain days, perform them at this, like on all in one day, like this marathon, like binge watching a whole series, but live. So they were constantly working with them and we were there to sort of rehearse and create new stuff with it, with our choreography team. So we were on doing really different stuff than they were. We were like, ah, how do we move it this way? That doesn't quite look like the, the wing. You know, we were puppeteering the wings and there was three people who were lifting up the angel. So we spent a lot of time tweaking and experimenting while they were doing that, but with text and with the choreography pretty set, they weren't changing that. So they were playing with relationships, playing with how exactly does this stuff go? And so we had a really different task than them. And it was like the culture around it was generally like, don't talk to them while they do that stuff. You can talk to them when they approach you. It was, it was I couldn't tell at the time if it was because it was coming from England, a place where, you know, we've, we've inherited a lot of our, our, ideas about class and, and um, casts, or if it was Broadway. I didn't know, as I, I, didn't, I hadn't worked with either of those factors before. So I, I don't know, I'm not sure, I, to this day I don't know, um, but I think a lot of it has to do with Broadway and unions and such. And we, uh, you know, we learned how to like rely on each other and talk to each other and compare notes with each other without going up the chain to the people who were in charge. But occasionally it would get surprisingly difficult like with Robin Frohard and all, when there's a problem, it might be like the light's a little wrong. It might be like the stool's in the wrong place. And sometimes it's a quick, you just say out loud, like, does anybody know why that is? And if they don't, 
then we kind of often come together as a team because everything we're doing is design. Everything we're moving is about the bigger picture. So we all put our heads together on how to get that stool or the light or whatever to be at the right place at the right time. Who, did, who needs to hand it off to whom? Maybe it's actually a little bit of tape in the right place and we're all going to try it. And then maybe someone will make an executive decision and then that'll be the end of it. And it won't no longer be a team effort on Broadway. We, I would try to do this. I would be like, ah, oh, we just need to move a little bit this way or that. And then another person I'm working with would be like, ah, I'm, you know, don't, we're not going to do any kind of lateral note taking. Don't speak to me about what, what this is. And I'll be like, oh, right. Okay. I'll learn. I have to, this is like not a place to do that kind of collaboration. And then other times somebody up top would be like, we are tired of small conversations happening on stage. No one speak. Uh, we will, we want actually every, we want to hear every conversation that happens. So although it feels a little stymied, make sure it's shared with everyone. Don't try to fix small problems. Only every, only like say them out loud and we'll go through the chain of command and see if who already knows that problem already has an idea to solve it. Um, and I think that was supposed to be efficient, but in my life, uh, this isn't, you know, the, I, I think the National Theater makes incredible stuff consistently. But in my life, in my small scale part of the world, it, but in all other parts of my life, decentralized authority works a lot better for every little thing. So creating little pockets, and then when those things don't work, going up a little bit, and then rather than going to the top to try to figure out every problem, that is how my puppetry community works for the most part, um, for better or for worse. So that was an adjustment period, but it also made for a really beautiful show. I can't fault them. That kind of giving, like Mary and Elliot having complete control over every aspect of the show made for a really beautiful show. So I don't think that was necessarily a bad thing. I was, by being so removed from the center, I was also basically like a man in spandex standing backstage in, a cr in crazy like dirt, smut, smoke makeup waiting for my time to go on stage and move a piece of furniture. So there was that, that was for me, a bigger event than the like artistic challenges was hanging out with the union dudes, talking to them about how, how their life is going on, like while intense emotional catharsis is happening on stage. There was a time when Andrew Garfield would, you know, he has to pour, he has to sweat his body weight every day. And he noticed that people were talking backstage and he's like, this is very distracting. I'm trying to find new stuff every day. So please don't talk. You're only a few feet away from me. And I have to play to a house of 1500 people. So please don't just like have a convo while I'm miked trying to do this. And uh, so then everybody would get scolded. Like, please, did you hear what Andrew's like? Please, Andrew has made it clear to the, to the, you know, the stage managers and we're trying to find out who it is who keeps doing this. And then I'd be backstage and this dude, would be back there and he, he would like reach into the AC vent and pull out like a, like a Wendy's bag that said Baconator on the outside. And he'd be like, hey, I'm like, shh, hey, we can't talk. This is, we're there on stage right now. And he's like, hey, I'm like, shh, please, please. He's like, hey, you want a Baconator? I got three in here. I'm like, shh, please, please. And he doesn't care. He's like so protective by his, he does not give a shit who hears him talk about Baconators while these people have paid their like $300 seats to watch Andrew Garfield like pour his heart out about the AIDS epidemic. And this would happen consistently. This dude would like stomp around and fucking hand out food and like ask you how it was going. And I don't know, I kind of, I love that guy for that. But also that's a really, it's a really different, when you separate people out, you know, which I think Broadway can do, the great white way knows how to like keep everybody in their own silos. Then people have their own priorities. And that was a fascinating journey. Being with those dudes, 
getting to the point where they felt comfortable enough with me that I could actually fix the puppet when I wanted to and, and just keep them abreast of it. Just like learning to love those, uh, I think it's called the local one. I think it's the oldest union in New York um, is, the, is the stage hands union. And I love those guys and, and getting to know the people underneath the set. There's so many people involved. And occasionally, you know, by being one of those invisible people, I also, I get to see actors walking off stage who want to talk to somebody and then it's me sometimes and they'll just tell me what they're going through. So that was also a trip, um, you know, just being around all this. I, I don't even want to, I don't even want to pick a name to say first. I'll say Nathan Lane because he's, you know, everybody knows Nathan Lane. But um, yeah, being around those people and just when they choose to share what's going on in their lives and when they have to keep it for the stage. And that was, yeah, it's a really different trajectory vibe culture than making stuff out of duvetine and cardboard and like, you know, and, and, the, and the only mystery being like, what's the audience going to think rather than like, what's the other person on st stage going to do when I say this? I don't know. I'm not sure if that answers your question. It's a, there's a lot to say about how different that industry is and how it's going to have to adjust now that the pandemic has shut it down and how they're going to have to think about equity. They're going to have to think about how do they serve these unions? How do the unions serve them? How do they work if their industry is based on people coming from out of town to see work made by a bunch of people from in town. I don't know. I think that Broadway's going to change, but it was cool to be a part of it while I was there. I love that in all of the puppet shows I've ever been a part of, there's never been a Baconator involved in any of them, but I love that on the Broadway, <laughs> there's a Baconator guy just waiting backstage to hook you up. Do you know, do you know who Beth Malone is? She's no, she was a star on um, Fun Home, the musical, and she played the angel for half the run at Angels in America. And I refer to her as my dad on set. She's has been, it was very fatherly to me and I love Beth Malone. Beth Malone has a scene where she comes upside down as the angel to introduce Andrew to heaven. And she's like, you've arrived. And then she like goes upside down back up into the fly space. And she straight up ate a Baconator upside down up there while she was waiting. She was like, yeah, yeah, give, give me that bacon. She ate it. She said it was a big mistake to be upside down in a harness eating one, but she like had to give it a try. So like, it's not just me. There was other people who were down to try to like have the experience of the, the bacon sandwich while in like, while in rigging on set. I love that. I, you know, like there's always these stories of like people backstage having fun. Like you and I, during Dan's show, we had a moment where we would just kind of like wait backstage with the train conductor character and demolishing and just do the most silly, silly things with that puppet. And I love that even on Broadway, people still play before they make their entrance on stage, whether it's like making puppets Constantly. do naughty things or eating a Baconator while hanging upside down. Oh, constantly. Yeah. No. And yeah, all those actors, sometimes they're in their rooms preparing. And then as they come out, like about to go on stage, that's when they're most like, okay, now I'm going to interact with everybody. Now I'm going to pinch your nipple and I'm going to scream at this guy and I'm going to like throw this thing around. And I'm going to eat a piece of cake. And they just like, <laughs> it's incredible. It, you know, I don't think people grow out of that exactly. They just are in it or they're not. Well, uh, Rowan, I think we've come to the end of our time, but before we get there, I want to put you through what we are calling the Puppet Hot Pot. The Puppet Hot Pot. I think on round one of our interview try, it maybe didn't quite have a name yet, but it's got a theme song and everything. Hot Pot. And it's a, a rapid fire series of questions with a rapid fire series of responses. Are you, are you ready and willing to, to jump into the Puppet Hot Pot? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Question number one. What is your favorite form of puppetry right now? I'd say like tabletop direct manipulation. My favorite maybe to look at would be like water puppetry. That stuff's nuts. Nice. Any new or interesting hobbies you've developed during this time at home? I just picked up, I just started a course by this group called the Artist Research Collective. And it's like a sort of anti-capitalist um, vocational training. And I am going to make a work code. Uh, Anne Halliday turned me on to it because she made a jumpsuit. Every course that they teach online is half a lecture on the end of capitalism, which is rapidly approaching, and half like a demonstration on how to make something practical. So that has been exciting, uh, learning to sew and to drape and to make clothes. Oh my god. Okay, well then, uh, question 2A. Can you please send me the link to this information? Absolutely. Artist Research Collective is very cool. They have this great philosophy that's like, we will, we're, we're here to disseminate information and change the world, not to collect money or um, resources. I love it. Can't wait to look into that. Number three, uh, what is a memorable puppet mishap that has happened to you on stage in a performance? Um, God, there's so many good ones. When we were doing 69 Degrees South, that seminal, that first puppet show that I was in with Phantom Limb Company, they're in Antarctica. It's about Ernest Shackleton in, in Antarctica. And um, I had a puppet that was supposed to, I think it was going off to, it was going off to like kill a sled dog. And uh, it like waved to the other uh, the other puppets this is marionette right and we're up like four feet on these stilts and for whatever reason the puppet's hand came off the body so the arm fell down and this hand started to eerily specter like sort of fl like float and rotate around the stage and to the, everyone's credit they all the puppets like looked up at the hand and then my puppet looked at them and then like walked off stage slowly and then came back with and eric had, had just covered it in, in gaff tape so it came back with this like gaff this white gaff cast of his hand like taped back to his body it was pretty awesome though, like all the puppets just aware that there's now like a ghost hand in the space and nobody breaking and music continuing and everybody just... I love that. In all of your years in New York City, do you have like one memorably weird New York story? Subway oh, riding or, How? you know, only yeah. New York sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know how much time I have to tell you the story, but I'll, I'll say it as fast as I can. Uh, I came back from babysitting once and I was in like babysitting mood. And I like, um, I have a lot of stories that start that way. And I got on the subway with a banh mi and I had this stupid idea that I was going to eat this banh mi on the subway. I'm just so stupid. And, I, and I'm like, you know, wrapping it, got it all, I got my stuff. And then I start eating it. And this dude uh, swaggles over to me and like drunkenly like holds onto the, to the strap. And he's like, come on, give me a bite of your sandwich. And I start to notice this guy and he's really belligerent and I don't know if he's drunk at all but he's just you know just loud and, and down and out and he keeps bothering me until I say sit down and I'll give you a bite and like uh, my, my babysitter instinct just kicked in I was like hey listen to me sit down you're gonna have a bite you gotta sit down so I ate half my sandwich and he watched me intently and then I gave him the other half and then he proceeded to and people the people looking at me uncomfortable on the train like oh god that guy so sorry about that guy and now they're looking at me so approval like you did something nice for the guy we didn't think to do that that's so nice of you me in my suit I don't have the same thing I just smile at this young man who just gave that guy half a sandwich. Then the dude proceeds to remove all the carrots and cucumbers and put them right on the floor. Just remove everything except for the like meat that was in there. And he just just makes a salad on the ground of all this stuff. And I'm so horrified that I, I enabled this that I stand up to him and I say, excuse me, you need to, you need to pick that up. 
And he starts saying, I don't speak English. And I just keep trying, just in this babysitter tactic that I've learned, just keep trying different ways to say, excuse me, hey, I'm paying attention to you. Hey, you need to, you know what? I think you want to pick it up. And eventually I kind of had this awful guilt moment where I was like, hey man, should I not have given you that sandwich? You didn't like it? You didn't like this part? And he's like, no, I did like the sandwich. And I was like, you liked it? He's like, yeah. I was like, so, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad I gave it to you, but now you need to help me out. You got to pick up that cucumber and put it in this bag in my hand. And slowly, with a, long, a lot of eye contact, we eventually got to the point where he was picking up all the stuff and putting it in the back of my hand. <laughs> and the people in the train were just so horrified watching me berate this poor guy and until he cleaned up his mess. And I think he really did want someone to both feed him and care for him. And I, in a way, did both of those things that day. That's an incredibly wow. weird and wonderful New York story. Rowan, <laughs> Rowan, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I wanted to be a hypnotist in middle school. I think, um, I don't know. I think I'd like to be, uh, I'd still like to be a cartoonist. I, I don't think, I don't know if it'll happen, but that's what I want. I love that. Hypnotist and cartoonist. Those are all very, very good. And uh, one final question. You're an incredibly gregarious person and maybe one of the most gregarious I've ever met. Yeah. And I wonder, do you, could you pinpoint where do you think that comes from? Mm, I'm, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a youngest sibling, so I feel like I've had to perform. To, to like to compete to get attention uh, constantly. But also, I don't know, I feel like it comes from, I think I really like people and I assume as, against a lot of my feelings that those people like me. And so I just really like, I enjoy being with people, talking to them and hearing them and trying to understand what they think is important. And I think that that kind of love of people, which really works great in an artistic community where you're trying to constantly help people make work that is weird and bizarre and imaginative and unrealistic maybe it makes for good conversations and it also it makes for a good community which i think the, the puppetry community has a lot of people like this they just really like each other and they like to see people get big and show themselves rowan i can't think of a better person who is showing themselves and such a huge part of the community and certainly helps foster that in other up-and-coming puppeteers. So thank you for all you do and your time today. Again, you're giving your time again for us today. Rowan, where can people find you on the World Wide Webs? I don't have, I don't have an Instagram. You can look Rowan McGee up, but I don't have a website either. Uh, mm. Just like, uh, you know, this is crazy. You can email rowanmcgee at gmail.com if you want to get on my mailing list. Wow, and, uh, direct to Rowan right there through yeah. Gmail. You can keep track. I guess if you, if you, you know, if you follow Object Movement Puppetry Festival, you'll see something I do every year with Maiko and with Justin and Zach and all the other artists. But um, yeah, I don't, you can just, you can just email me and I'll tell you when I'm doing stuff. I Find me on Facebook. People- Yeah, I hope people bombard you with email requests for your mailing list. I'm prepared. Um, And then you can also find Rowan on MySpace, of course. Um, Of course. That's right. LinkedIn. My Uh, LinkedIn profile is where most of LinkedIn, please ask me for a recommendation. That's right. Dogman, puppet man, bond me, giver, uh, Mr. Rowan McGee, thank you again for your time. Thank you. This is fun. The Puppet Pod, hosted by Josh Rice and me, Sarah Stabley. 
Produced and engineered by also me, Sarah Stapley. Additional editing by Josh Marks. Theme song and incidental music by Seth Forgolzia. Additional music by Hazar and Scott Holmes. Executive produced by Dixon Place and the New York State Puppet Festival, a program of Shake on the Lake and Josh Rice Projects. Support is provided by Dixon Place, the Jim Henson Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Council for Wyoming County Community Arts Grant. This decentralization program is made possible in part with funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature, administered in Wyoming County by the Arts Council for Wyoming County. To make donations, please visit shakeonthelake.org or dixonplace.org. For more information about the artists featured on our podcast, please visit www.thepuppetpod.com. 